Chapter 3 of The Ball and the Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Heckel. The Ball and the Cross by G.K. Chesterton. Chapter 3 Some Old Curiosities. The evening sky, a dome of solid gold, unflaked even by a single sunset cloud, steeped the meanest sights of London in a strange and mellow light, and made a little greasy street of St. Martin's Lane look as if it were paved with gold. It made the pawnbrokers, halfway down it, shine as if it were really that mountain of piety that the French poetic instinct has named it. It made the mean pseudo-French bookshop. Next, but one to it, a shop packed with dreary indecency, show for a moment a kind of Parisian color. And the shop that stood between the pawn shop and the shop of dreary indecency showed with quite a blaze of old-world beauty, for it was, by accident, a shop not unbeautiful in itself. The front window had a glimmer of bronze and blue steel, lit, as by a few stars, by the sparks of what were alleged to be jewels, for it was, in brief, a shop of bric-a-brac and old curiosities. A row of half-burnished seventeenth-century swords ran like an ornate railing along the front of the window. Behind was a darker glimmer of old oak and old armor, and higher up hung the most extraordinary-looking South Sea tools or utensils, whether designed for killing enemies or merely for cooking them, no mere white man could possibly conjecture. But the romance of the eye, which really on this rich evening clung about the shop, had its main source in the accident of two doors standing open, the front door that opened on the street and a back door that opened on an odd green square of garden that the sun turned to a square of gold. There is nothing more beautiful than thus to look, as it were, through the archway of a house, as if the open sky were an interior chamber, and the sun a secret lamp of the place. I have suggested that the sunset light made everything lovely. To say that it made the keeper of the curiosity shop lovely would be a tribute to it perhaps to extreme. It would easily have made him beautiful if he had been merely squalid, if he had been a Jew of the Fagin type, but he was a Jew of another, and much less admirable type, a Jew with a very well-sounding name. For though there are no hard tests for separating the tares and the wheat of any people, one rude but efficient guide is that the nice Jew is called Moses Solomon, and the nasty Jew is called Thornton Piercy. The keeper of the curiosity shop was of the Thornton Piercy branch of the chosen people. He belonged to those lost ten tribes whose industrious object is to lose themselves. He was a man still young, but already corpulent, with sleek, dark hair, heavy, handsome clothes, and a full, fat, permanent smile, which looked at the first glance kindly, and at the second cowardly. The name over his shop was Henry Gordon, but two Scotchmen, 
who were in his shop that evening, could come upon no trace of a Scotch accent. These two Scotchmen in this shop were careful purchasers, but freehand payers. One of them, who seemed to be the principal and the authority, whom indeed Mr. Henry Gordon fancied he had seen somewhere before, was a small, sturdy fellow with fine gray eyes, a square red tie, and a square red beard that he carried aggressively forward as if he defied anyone to pull it. The other kept so much in the background in comparison that he looked almost ghostly in his gray cloak or plaid, a tall, sallow, silent young man. The two Scotchmen were interested in seventeenth-century swords. They were fastidious about them. They had a whole armory of these weapons brought out and rolled clattering about the counter until they found two of precisely the same length. Presumably they desired the exact symmetry for some decorative trophy. Even then they felt the points, poised the swords for balance, and bent them in a circle to see that they sprang straight again, which for decorative purposes seems carrying realism rather far. These will do, said the strange person with the red beard, and perhaps I had better pay for them at once. And, as you are the challenger, Mr. McKeon, perhaps you had better explain the situation. The tall Scotchman in grey took a step forward and spoke in a voice quite clear and bold, and yet somehow lifeless, like a man going through an ancient formality. The fact is, Mr. Gordon, we have to place our honor in your hands. Words have passed between Mr. Turnbull and myself on a grave and invaluable matter, which can only be atoned for by fighting. Unfortunately, as the police are in some sense pursuing us, we are hurried, and must fight now, and without seconds. But, if you will be so kind as to take us into your little garden, and see fair play, we shall feel how the shopman recovered himself from a stunning surprise and burst out. Gentlemen, are you drunk? A duel? A duel in my garden? Go home, gentlemen. Go home. Why, what did you quarrel about? We quarreled, said Evan, in the same dead voice, about religion. The fat shopkeeper rolled about in his chair with enjoyment. Well, this is a funny game he said. So, you want to commit murder on behalf of religion? Well, well, my religion is a little respect for humanity, and excuse me, cut in Turnbull, suddenly and fiercely, pointing toward the pawnbroker's next door, don't you own that shop? Why, er, yes, said Gordon. And don't you own that shop, repeated the secularist, pointing backward to the pornographic bookseller, what if I do? Why then, cried Turnbull, with grating contempt, I will leave the religion of humanity confidently in your hands. But I am sorry I troubled you about such a thing as honor. Look here, my man, I do believe in humanity. I do believe in liberty. My father died for it under the swords of the yeomanry. I am going to die for it, if need be, under that sword on your counter. But... If there is one sight that makes me doubt 
It is your foul, fat face. It is hard to believe you were not meant to be ruled like a dog or killed like a cockroach. Don't try your slave's philosophy on me. We are going to fight, and we are going to fight in your garden with swords. Be still. Raise your voice above a whisper, and I'll run you through the body. Turnbull put the bright point of the sword against the gay waistcoat of the dealer, who stood choking with rage and fear, and an astonishment so crushing as to be greater than either. McKeon, said Turnbull, falling almost into the familiar tone of a business partner. McKeon, tie up this fellow and put a gag in his mouth. Be still, I say, or I'll kill you where you stand. The man was too frightened to scream, but he struggled wildly, while Evan McKeon, whose long, lean hands were unusually powerful, tightened some old curtain cords around him, strapped a rope gag in his mouth, and rolled him on his back on the floor. There's nothing very strong here, said Evan, looking about him. I'm afraid he'll work through the gag in half an hour or so. Yes, said Turnbull, but one of us will be killed by that time. Well, let's hope so, said the Highlander, glancing doubtfully at the squirming thing on the floor. And now, said Turnbull, twirling his fiery mustache and fingering his sword, let us go into the garden. What an exquisite summer evening! McKeon said nothing, but lifting his sword from the counter, went out into the sun. The brilliant light ran along the blades, filling the channels of them with white fire. The combatants stuck their swords in the turf and took off their hats, coats, waistcoats, and boots. Evan said a short Latin prayer to himself, during which Turnbull made something of a parade of lighting a cigarette, which he flung away the instant after, when he saw McKeon apparently standing ready. Yet McKeon was not exactly ready. He stood staring like a man, stricken with a trance. "'What are you staring at?' asked Turnbull. "'Do you see the bobbies?' "'I see Jerusalem,' said Evan. "'All covered with the shields and standards of the Saracens.' "'Jerusalem!' said Turnbull, laughing. "'Well, we've taken the only inhabitant into captivity.' And he picked up his sword and made it whistle like a boy's wand. I beg your pardon, said McKeon dryly. Let us begin. McKeon made a military salute with his weapon, which Turnbull copied or parodied with an impatient contempt. And in the stillness of the garden, the swords came together with a clear sound like a bell. The instant the blades touched, each felt them tingle to their very points with a personal vitality, as if they were two naked nerves of steel. Evan had worn throughout an air of apathy, which might have been the stale apathy of one who wants nothing, but it was indeed the more dreadful apathy of one who wants something and will care for nothing else. And this was seen suddenly, for the instant Evan engaged, he disengaged and lunged with an infernal violence. His opponent, with a desperate promptitude, parried and reposted, the parry only just succeeded. The riposte failed. Something big and unbearable seemed to have broken finally out of Evan in that first murderous lunge, leaving him lighter and cooler and quicker upon his feet. He fell to again, fiercely still, 
but now with a fierce caution. The next moment Turnbull lunged. McKeon now seemed to catch the point and throw it away from him, and was thrusting back like a thunderbolt, when a sound paralyzed him, another sound beside the ringing weapons. Turnbull, perhaps from an equal astonishment, perhaps from chivalry, stopped also, and forbore to send his sword through his exposed enemy. "'What is that?' asked Evan hoarsely. A heavy scraping sound, as of a trunk being dragged along a littered floor, came from the dark shop behind them. "'The old Jew has broken one of his strings, and he's crawling about,' said Turnbull. "'Be quick. We must finish before he gets his gag out. "'Yes, yes, quick, on guard,' cried the Highlander. The blades crossed again with the same sound like song, and the men went to work again with the same white and watchful faces. Evan, in his impatience, went back a little to his wildness. He made windmills, as the French duelists say, and though he was probably a shade better fencer of the two, he found the other's point pass his face twice so close as almost to graze his cheek. The second time, he realized the actual possibility of defeat and pulled himself together under a shock of the sanity of anger. He narrowed and, so to speak, tightened his operations. He fenced, as the swordsman's boast goes, in a wedding ring. He turned Turnbull's thrust with a maddening and almost mechanical click like that of a machine. Whenever Turnbull's sword sought to go over that other mere white streak, it seemed to be caught in a complex network of steel. He turned one thrust, turned another, turned another. Then suddenly he went forward at the lunge. With his whole living weight, Turnbull leaped back, but Evan lunged and lunged and lunged again like a devilish piston rod or battering ram. And high above all the sound of the struggle, there broke into the silent evening a bellowing human voice, nasal, raucous, at the highest pitch of pain. Help! Help! Police! Murder! Murder! The gag was broken, and the tongue of terror was loose. Keep on! gasped Turnbull. One may be killed before they come. The voice of the screaming shopkeeper was loud enough to drown not only the noise of the swords, but all other noises around it. But even through its rending din, there seemed to be some other stir or scurry, and Evan, in the very act of thrusting at Turnbull, saw something in his eyes that made him drop his sword. The atheist, with his gray eyes at their widest and wildest, was staring straight over his shoulder at the little archway of shop that opened onto the street beyond. And he saw the archway blocked and blackened with strange figures. We must bolt, McKeon, he said abruptly, and there isn't a damned second to lose either. Do as I do. With a bound, he was beside the little cluster of his clothes and boots that lay on the lawn. He snatched them up without waiting to put any of them on, and tucking his sword under his other arm, went wildly at the wall at the bottom of the garden and swung himself over it. Three seconds after he had alighted in his socks on the other side, McKeon alighted beside him, also in his socks, and also carrying clothes and sword in a desperate bundle. They were in a by-street, very lean and lonely itself, but so close to a crowded thoroughfare 
that they could see the vague masses of vehicles going by, and could even see an individual hansom cab passing the corner at the instant. Turnbull put his fingers to his mouth like a gutter snipe and whistled twice. Even as he did so, he could hear the loud voice of the neighbors and the police coming down the garden. The hansom swung sharply and came tearing down the little lane at his call. When the cabman saw his fares, however, two wild-haired men in their shirts and socks, with naked swords under their arms, he not unnaturally brought his readiness to a rigid stop and stared suspiciously. "'You talk to him a minute,' whispered Turnbull, and stepped back into the shadow of the wall. "'We want you,' said McKeon to the cabman, with a superb Scotch drawl of indifference and assurance, "'to drive us to St. Pancras Station very quick.' "'Very sorry, sir,' said the cabman. "'But I'd like to know it was all right. "'Might I arst where you came from, sir?' A second after he spoke, McKeon heard a heavy voice on the other side of the wall, saying, "'I suppose I'd better get over and look for them. "'Give me a back.' "'Cabby,' said McKeon, again assuming the most deliberate and lingering lowland Scotch intonation, if you're really very anxious to ken where I come from, I'll tell ye as a very great secret. I come from Scotland, and I'm again to St. Packer's Station. Open the doors, cabby. The cabman stared, but laughed. The heavy voice behind the wall said, Now then, a better back this time, Mr. Price. And from the shadow of the wall, Turnbull crept out. He had struggled wildly into his coat, leaving his waistcoat on the pavement, and he was with a fierce, pale face climbing up the cab behind the cabman. McKeon had no glimmering notion of what he was up to, but an instinct of discipline inherited from a hundred men of war made him quick to his own part and trust the other man's. "'Open the doors, cabby,' he repeated, with something of the obstinate solemnity of a drunkard. "'Open the doors!' Did ye no hear me say St. Pancras Station? The top of a policeman's helmet appeared above the garden wall. The cabman did not see it, but he was still suspicious and began, Very sorry, sir, but... And with that, the cat-like Turnbull tore him out of his seat and hurled him into the street below, where he lay suddenly stunned. Give me his hat, cried Turnbull in a silver voice that the other obeyed like a bugle. Get inside with the swords. And just as the red and raging face of a policeman appeared above the wall, Turnbull struck the horse with a terrible cut of the whip, and the two went whirling away like a boomerang. They had spun through seven streets and three or four squares before anything further happened. Then, in the neighborhood of Maida Vale, the driver opened the trap and talked through it in a manner not wholly common in conversations through that aperture, "'Mr. McKeon,' he said shortly and civilly. "'Mr. Turnbull,' replied his motionless fare. "'Under circumstances such as those in which we were both recently placed, "'there was no time for anything but very abrupt action. "'I trust, therefore, that you have no cause to complain of me "'if I have deferred until this moment a consultation with you "'on our present position and future action. "'Our present position, Mr. McKeon,' I imagine that I am under no special necessity of describing. We have broken the law, and are fleeing from its officers. 
Our future action is a thing which I myself entertain sufficiently strong views about, but I have no right to assume or anticipate yours, though I may have formed a decided conception of your character and a decided notion of what they will probably be. Still, by very principle of intellectual justice, I am bound to ask you now, and seriously, whether you wish to continue our interrupted relations. McKeon leant his white and rather weary face back upon the cushions in order to speak through the open door. Mr. Turnbull, he said, I have nothing to add to what I have said before. It is strongly borne in upon me that you and I, the sole occupants of this runaway cab, are at this moment the two most important people in London, possibly in Europe. I have been looking at all the streets as we went past. I have been looking at all the shops as we went past. I have been looking at all the churches as we went past. At first I felt a little dazed at the vastness of it all. I could not understand what it all meant. But now I know exactly what it all means. It means us. This whole civilization is only a dream. You and I are the realities. Religious symbolism, said Mr. Turnbull through the trap, does not, as you are probably aware, appeal ordinarily to thinkers of the school to which I belong. But in symbolism, as you use it in this instance, I must, I think, concede a certain truth. We must fight this thing out somewhere, because, as you truly say, we have found each other's reality. We must kill each other or convert each other. I used to think all Christians were hypocrites, and I felt quite mildly towards them, really. But I know you are sincere, and my soul is mad against you. In the same way you used, I suppose, to think that all atheists thought atheism would leave them free for immorality. And yet, in your heart, you tolerated them entirely. Now you know that I am an honest man, and you are mad against me, as I am against you. Yes, that's it. You can't be angry with a bad man, but a good man in the wrong. Why, one thirsts for his blood. Yes, you open for me a vista of thought. Don't run into anything, said Evan immovably. There's something in that view of yours, too, said Turnbull and shut down the trap. They sped on through shining streets that shot by them like arrows. Mr. Turnbull had evidently a great deal of unused practical talent which was unrolling itself in this ridiculous adventure. They had got away with such stunning promptitude that the police chase had in all probability not even properly begun. But, in case it had, the amateur cabman chose his dizzy course through London with a strange dexterity. He did not do what would have first occurred to any ordinary outsider desiring to destroy his tracks. He did not cut into byways or twist his way through mean streets. His amateur common sense told him that it was precisely the poor street, the side street, that would be likely to remember and report the passing of a hansom cab, like the passing of a royal procession. He kept chiefly to the great roads, so full of hansoms that a wilder pair than they might easily have passed in the press. In one of the quieter streets, Evan put on his boots. 
Towards the top of Albany Street, the singular cabman again opened the trap. Mr. McKeon, he said, I understand that we have now definitely settled that in the conventional language honor is not yet satisfied. Our action must at least go further than it has gone under recent interrupted conditions. That, I believe, is understood. Perfectly, replied the other with his bootlace in his teeth. Under those conditions, continued Turnbull, his voice coming through the hole with a slight note of trepidation, very unusual with him. I have a suggestion to make, if that can be called a suggestion, which has probably occurred to you as readily as to me. Until the actual event comes off, we are practically in the position, if not of comrades, at least of business partners. Until the event comes off, therefore, I should suggest that quarreling would be inconvenient and rather inartistic, while the ordinary exchange of politeness between man and man would be not only elegant, but uncommonly practical. You are perfectly right, answered McKeon, with his melancholy voice, in saying that all this has occurred to me. All duelists should behave like gentlemen to each other, but we by the queerness of our position, are something much more than either duelists or gentlemen. We are, in the oddest and most exact sense of the term, brothers in arms. Mr. McKeon, replied Turnbull calmly, no more need be said, and he closed the trap once more. They had reached Finchley Road before he opened it again. Then he said, Mr. McKeon, may I offer you a cigar? It will be a touch of realism. Thank you, answered Evan. You are very kind. And he began to smoke in the cab. End of chapter 3 Read by Matthew Heckel St. Louis August 2008 Matt Heckel at blogspot.com